Season 2, Episode 1, A Man of Wealth and Taste. Don't talk, just listen. Son, there is no hope, only mystery, wonder, and danger. Black Sun Dispatches on the Cinefunks Podcast Network. profession he possessed, what function he served in the grand mechanism that is society. He would most likely fold his long fingers together over his sharp, double-breasted suit and regard you evenly with his eyes, gray as old stones and gray as the hair slicked close to his skull. His wife used to tell him, that his eyes made him look like Paul Newman. You would note that even before the bullet, the man McRae looked nothing like Paul Newman. He would stare at you, those gray eyes born past whatever defenses you possess. You would begin to sweat, begin to squirm. You would want desperately to not stare at what the bullet did to his face, and so you look anywhere and everywhere else. But, inexorably, your eyes would return to what the bullet did. And when you looked up, you would find him still staring at you, but a new light would be glowing in those gray eyes because he has you now. He has taken your measure. Some part of you has been given up and will belong to him forever. Only then will the man McRae relax. He will recline back into his comfortable chair and his cheeks will twitch and you will realize that he is trying to smile. The bullet tore his lips from his face, and so the man McRae is always smiling. But there comes at times a predatory gleam that will let you know that he is indeed enjoying himself. Then, and only then, will he answer your question. He will lean forward And he will say, I am a people person. Indeed, the man McRae has many people involved with his life. At 7 o'clock in the a.m. every morning, five attendants come to his room. They place a bib over his chest and stand at attention while he eats his breakfast and reviews reports left by 
are his lieutenants. He has people around him all the time. Security guards, consiglieries, advisors, attendants, and a steady tide of well-wishers that border on worshippers. Upon entering his atmosphere, they lose all sense of identity and dignity. They strike their knees and open their mouths, empty of all things save exaltation. After all, it is he who has kept them safe. It is he who keeps the lights on. It is he who allows the days to pass in peace and be succeeded by a new dawn beneath the black sun. People need to come to him, for McRae has not set foot outside his sanctum since the bullet. And why should he? He took over the heart of the city, and in the heart of that heart, he furnished the tallest standing skyscraper into a palace made out of dreams. Every room of every floor is a little patch of paradise. It costs so much to get in. It costs everything. He knows what people whisper about what goes on in his building. They say he keeps a lion in his penthouse. They say there are entire floors given over to orgies, floors designated by genders, ethnicities, and body types. Inside these rooms, you cannot even see the floor for all the writhing mass of bodies. They say he has soundproofed rooms where you could scream forever and never once be heard. They say he sleeps with a canopy formed of the flesh of his foes. That he bathes in blood in some kind of mad quest to undo the violation done to his face. They say he goes up to the roof and there the roiling storms bring dread figures and it is they who guide and caution him. They say the bullet really did kill him. The thing walking and talking now is something else. Something that slithered out of the dark into Groot within his ravaged skull and there began to grow. McRae knows these whispers because most of them first issued from out of his own mouth. He did not start the one about him having died, though. He does not like that one. McRae will tell you, his actions are his own, always and only 
his own. He will accept no outside influences on his life, his mind, or his fortunes. After all, he started with nothing. Father dead and mother long gone before he could remember either. Raised by an uncle whose interest in the boy was far removed from fatherly. He freed himself from those circumstances with patience, situational awareness, and a pair of pruning shears. The other boys in reform school have been easily divided into the feral and the weak-minded. He tamed the feral. He corralled the weak-minded. And anyone else who got in the way was dealt with. After all, he was a people person even then. He progressed from there. No part of it had been easy, but all of it had progressed in an unfolding manner, all of it moving with momentum and the order that he had desired. And now, he sat at the very top of the world. Not the world he had started in, admittedly, but still. For a long time, the only fault in his self-ordained arc had been the matter of his wife and of her. But his wife was long dead and could bother him no more. And as for her, she was taken care of. He had won, finally, conclusively. And do you know why I won? The bound woman made no reply. Grime streaked cheeks, filthy mad hair, clothes that were rank with the stank of going unchanged and unclean for God knows how long. Her eyes were tired. Yes, he saw that. But there was something more there. Something that called to him. It is a question of will, my dear. The will to succeed no matter what. And I think, perhaps, that you do as well. The woman raised her eyes to meet his for the first time. She did not flinch from the sight of his mangled face. After all, you do not hesitate open fire on that crowd, did you? Betsy Overby shook her head. And you 
did not have any problem killing that other boy, did you? The one near my daughter. Betsy Overby shook her head. The man McRae placed his elbows on his desk and steepled his long fingers. Well then, let us then discuss the matter of your will. should have killed her. The massacre at the gates had been one thing. Blind panic. Desperate times. She had felt she had no choice. Her path to that guard post had been a long and circuitous one. Maybe we'll tell you about it someday. For now, let it only be said that she stood on that parapet every bit as terrified as the people on the ground. The order to fire had exploded out of her lips, and the machine gun bursts started and ceased before Betsy even realized what had happened. God, she had been so afraid. God, what a mess. When the kaiju fell, she joined the retrieval team that went out to find the woman Cassandra, whom McRae seemed obsessed with for reasons no one besides the man himself seemed to know. Betsy was terrified to be out in the city, but she had been even more terrified to stay within the walls of McRae's keep. She could not stand having to hear or imagine hearing all the whispers and allegations against her. But she didn't mean to kill the boy. Really, she didn't. She had just been so afraid, so on edge. He had appeared and she had fired, and it had all been so, so very simple. When the gargoyle screamed, it was with a child's agony. She supposed she would always hear it. The others in the expedition took her gun, bound her hands, and marched her at once to the holding cells. You'll be chum for the freaks in the pit, you murderous bitch! One of the jailers snarled. But a curious thing happened while she waited for her fate. Betsy Overby realized that she was not afraid anymore. She reflected on this change for all the hours of her solitude. It was 
a bit like the sensation you have as a child after you lose a tooth. There is not necessarily pain, only an occupying emptiness you cannot help but probe. Consumed by this newfound hollowness, Betsy felt no fear as she was marched from her cell to an elevator. The elevator was glass, allowing for a sprawling view of the city. She had seen this skyline many, many times before, even if it now had more colossal footprints going through it than it had any time in the past. Normally, butterflies rose and fluttered in her gut and cold sweat broke at just the idea of being so close to such a place. But today, she felt nothing. She could not even muster fear over her own lack of fear. And so it was that she did not flinch when she saw the man McRae in all his glory. This, it seemed, was exactly the reaction he was looking for. McRae explained to her the current unrest, how the kaiju's rampage had shattered the uneasy but long-standing truce between those in his walled-off enclosure and those who lived in the city proper. There were fewer resources than ever, and those on the outside had asked for assistance from those within. When none was provided, those on the outside had stopped being polite. Perhaps there was a chance that tensions could have been eased, but for the matter of Cassandra. She had friends, and they wanted her back. But she is mine. Mine own. And so, war. And so, we shall need warriors. Souls who are untainted by that loathsome force known as fear. So tell me, Miss Overby, are you such a soul? And now, it was Betsy's turn to smile. It would not have surprised the man McRae to learn there was a black market within his enclosure. Had he learned, he probably would have remarked that a sure sign of a healthy market was a corresponding underground economy. Most likely, he would have ordered them to let things lie the way they were. But it would have surprised him to learn that the traders were exchanging more than just goods or medicine or captured beasts for the fighting pits. They traded stories as well. And this 
This he would indeed have shut down if he could have. But it was already too late. At first, the men of McRae's keep laughed at the tales brought to them. They laughed at stories of ghosts and red skies and the odd god of the sewer tribe. But even so, but even still, beneath the halls of the man who considers himself king of the land of the black sun, a god is taking root. But that's another story. Hi everybody, and welcome back to a brand new season of Black Sun Dispatches, part of the Cinepunks Podcast Network. My name is Brent Foley, and I write, produce, and perform the show. Black Sun Dispatches is only one of many great shows offered by the Cinepunks Network, uh, including the Cinepunks Podcast, Loud Fast Philly, Horror Business, The Mandate, along with tons of great writing from uh, me, well, I'm not saying my writing's great, but it is there. Uh, and a ton of other great writers uh, who are contributing really, really cool articles about a huge spectrum of film and music and culture and what really whatever you want. Uh, Black Sun Dispatches, like other Cinepunks program, is sponsored by Lehigh Valley Apparel Creations. You can hit up at xlvacx.com. Again, it's Lehigh Valley Apparel Creations at xlvacx.com. Cinepunks also has a Patreon, which feel free to contribute. Uh, we always really, really appreciate it. So uh, hopefully you guys are here and for season two. Uh, please spread the word that, about the new season. Uh, help, don't tell people about the old season uh, that wrapped up. It's all good, I think, hopefully. Uh, if you like this show, please rate and review us on iTunes. Uh, and use whatever kind of, like I said, any kind of form of social media or person to person that you can to let people know about this show. Uh, the first, thanks to the first season is still up and available. This new season is hopefully run just as long. Uh, so yeah, good stuff. Good stuff is on the way. You can follow me on Twitter at the true Brendan F. Uh, you can follow the show on Twitter at Black Sun Show. Black Sun Dispatches logo is designed by Jennifer Rogers and music is Winter by E.L. Heath. So I will be seeing you guys next time on uh, June 25th with our second episode of our second season entitled the day a worm crawled out of Janet. Hopefully you guys will be there for that, and hopefully you'll enjoy it. So like I said, uh, please enjoy the show. Please let your friends know about the show, and I'll be back with more nightmares in a couple weeks. Thanks.